Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That's my amazing wife, Liberty. We are a married couple with vastly different interests, and we're going to try to bring the other person to the dark side via the latest news in books and sports. We, before we get to the news, are going to discuss the fact that we have a giveaway from Flypaper Products. It's five vinyl stickers, one book-related button, and two magnets. So make sure you check us out on the social media to figure out how to enter. It's going to be running from this past Sunday on the 2nd through Saturday on the 8th when we will pick a winner. Yeah, we're definitely pretty excited to partner up with them. We're big believers in their products, and they're pretty cool little bookish things to give away, so I think you guys will really enjoy it. Yeah. As for the latest book news, there was something I meant to bring up last week and for some reason didn't get to, and it's that Keanu Reeves is writing a comic about an immortal warrior named the Berserker. Berserker? Berserker? One of those is correct. Berserker. That's the one. Okay. And the first comic is coming out on October 7th. There's going to be one per month for a year, so 12 issues total. And I think it's kind of interesting, kind of funny that this news came out right around the time the old guard came out, the movie. Yeah. So I'm not sure how I feel about it. Apparently he's supposed to be 80,000 years old. So who the heck knows what kind of person he's going to be. So way older than the old guard was. (laughs) Even the oldest person in the old guard, yeah. And so it's supposed to be about this warrior who is sort of battling with the fact that he's got a penchant for violence, but he wants to be more than that. I'm sorry, if I was 80,000 years old, I would have a lovely uh, tension towards violence. Well, I mean, I'd get sick of people's crap really fast. But that sounds interesting. I don't know if I'm going to read it or not. I think it's going to have to do with two things, which is plot and style, art style. So we'll see. It's funny how we seem to be getting more and more into like the illustrated style comics than we used to be. Yeah. The reason for that is they're coming out with better and better comics. And it's funny you mention that because I have two more pieces of comic news <laughs> in the news section. Perfect. One being that season two of the Umbrella Academy is out on Netflix. It's obviously an adaptation from the comics. We haven't started it yet because you've been working, so I'm going to be very excited when we get to start this tonight. I'm really sad that we haven't started it, but at the same time, there's so much sports stuff going on right now. My brain can barely handle all of it, so I'm excited to take a little break away. Yeah. And then the other piece of comic news, this is the one I'm most excited for, and I don't want to wait for it to come out. It's coming out in October 2020. It's from V.E. Schwab, who wrote the Villains series about two college roommates who discover how to create extraordinary powers and end up being enemies, and they're both morally gray, and it's amazing. And I think you'd like that series. But they're doing a five-issue comic series that happens in between the first two books. So it's uh, right in the middle there. So would you be required to read the first books or...? I think it'll probably give you insight that you wouldn't have if you didn't, but I don't think it's necessary per se. But on Instagram, V.E. Schwab said that she's excited to announce that there's a new comic series. It's going to be called Extraordinary, a five-issue comic set in the world of Vicious and Vengeful in the time frame between the two books, like I said. It's following a teen girl named Charlotte, 
who okay. survives a bus crash and gains the ability to see people's futures slash death in reflective surfaces. And when she sees her own future murder at the hands of a mysterious man named Eli Ever, she sets out for Merit to confront and change her fate. Definitely sounds like a pretty interesting comic, that's for sure. Right? And, like, if you know the books, you know how awesome that sounds. So I'm excited, but it's not going to come out till 2021, so it's going to be a while. So it's like that early video game release where it's like, we're going to make this thing, but you're going to wait at least two years for it. Well, they announced it in the Comic-Con virtual whatever they were doing. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that came out of that. And so that's where they decided to make that announcement. So that's why it's so far out from it actually being released. Yeah. It makes me kind of feel bad for all my friends back in San Diego that didn't get to go to Comic-Con this year since it's digital. But at the same time, you don't have to deal with You know who I feel bad for? The people who never get to go to Comic-Con. Like me. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll get there. And then the two non-comic related book news are a woman from Minnesota named Renee Koroshek, I think is how you say it. She during the beginning of the coronavirus would set out her teddy bear on her mailbox with a little fake mask on it. And so anytime she forgot to put out her teddy bear, people were calling or texting to find out where the bear is, I guess. And so she decided to write a children's book using her teddy bear as a way to explain the pandemic to children. Okay. And so that's only available locally, but other authors are also writing children's books to explain the virus. I just think it's really cute because I love teddy bears. Well, we have a few of them, including an actual Instagram for a traveling bear. Yeah. So. So that's only available in Minnesota or whatever, but it looks really cute. And then the second piece of non-comic book news in the book news world is San Francisco libraries are starting to do sidewalk pickup for their physical books. So do you send like an email in and then they prepare your books and send an email back, we're ready for your pickup? You obviously don't use a library. No, you put holds on books and then they let you know when the books are ready and you come pick them up. Gotcha. And so it's exciting for people who don't have access to books in other ways or people who use their libraries a lot that libraries are coming back even in places that aren't necessarily perfect at handling the pandemic. Yeah. But in this episode, the biggest piece of news is going to be all the new releases for the month of August that I'm excited for. Okay. August isn't traditionally a big book release but time of the year. But since everything else was kind of being pushed back, it maybe has become one? Things have been pushed back. There was one that was supposed to be released last month that got pushed back into this month, and then you've got authors who have more weight to them, I guess, when they put out a new book, who are putting out books like Stephanie Meyer is the first one on this list. She's putting out Midnight Sun, which is going to be out before this episode is out on August 4th. It's basically Twilight from Edward's point of view. And this was a series that I really enjoyed at 15 years old. I reread it last year when I turned 30 to see what my perspective is 15 15 years years later. later. Yeah. Very different. (laughs) Very, very different. But the reason that I think this might appeal to 
people who are my age or read these when they were younger and don't really love them anymore is that I feel like it can provide what was missing in Twilight, which is the relationship between all the vampires when no humans are around. They're a found family and that's one of the tropes that I really love. So I think that's going to be the number one reason I'm going to consider picking this up. But the problem is the length of the novel, it's almost 700 pages long, but also the price of the novel, it's almost $30. Well, and you got to cash in on something new, you know. It's been a while since she's come out with a book related to Twilight, so. Yeah, well, she's come out with other things since finishing Twilight that I think are better. And I think she could write a new series, possibly, without all these tropes that people don't like. But. But that's neither here nor there. I just don't know if I'm gonna want to spend $30 on a book that I think I'm not gonna like, but it might give me some nostalgia or give me a perspective that I didn't have in the original books. So it might be one of those things I have to pick up from the library or like someone might gift it to me from my family, but like I don't want to go out and actively look for it myself. Yeah. The second new release that I'm going to talk about is also coming out on August 4th. It's the third book in Ashley Poston's Once Upon a Con series. So it's about this really nerdy girl goes to a con in the first book called Geekerella. And that's the only one I've read, but she's come out with another book since about basically the same sort of con and fandom and this new one's going to be based off of beauty and the beast okay and it's called bookish and the beast so also very nerdy it's fandom anyone who's in a fandom or who has been deeply involved in a fandom would enjoy her once upon a con series do sports fandoms count no. Okay. Well, then darn. It's, it's very different. If you're not going to get made fun of for being super deep into it, then obviously you're not involved here. Gotcha. I'm not on the list then. And the third book also coming out on August 4th is the last book in the Courting Darkness duology by Robin Lefevers? Lefevres? I don't know which way is the right way to pronounce it. Sorry if we messed it up. I didn't read this first book. It's a historical fantasy, so that's why I haven't gotten into it. I know that a lot of people were really enjoying that book when it came out, but it just, I don't know. Anything that's historical, I kind of am on the fence about unless it's got a plot that I'm really going to enjoy, and I know that without a doubt. Right. But a lot of people enjoyed Courting Darkness when it came out last year, and so that's going to wrap up with this next book on August 4th. And then a book that I've technically already read, it was supposed to come out in July, got pushed back into August, I was given an arc through NetGalley. It's The Faithless Hawk by Margaret Owen, the second and final book in the Merciful Crow duology, comes out on August 18th. It's the book with the cast system that is based off of animals. You have the highborns who are phoenixes, the lowborns who are the crows, and the crows are the ones who are tasked with dealing with plague victims because they're the only cast who cannot catch the plague. Interesting. So they're doomed to walk the streets and sort of deal with all of that on top of constantly being punished for being lowborn. And it's got a lot of political themes, but I really enjoyed the expansion of the world in this second book. So if you like the first book, I think the second one's definitely worth reading. 
I do think that it should have been expanded to be three books in a series. Not because too much was happening at once, but it would have added a lot, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And then there's a first book in a series that's coming out on August 25th. So your birthday. Happy birthday to me. New book. It's a book you probably don't want to read. It's called Where Dreams Descend by Janella Angelus, I think is how you say it. It's the first book in the Kingdom of Cards series, and this book has been pitched to me as the greatest showman with Zac Efron and Zendaya, their romance, without all of the yucky Barnum stuff in it. It sounds really good. I think if you liked The Night Circus or if you liked uh, Caraval, this would be something for you. I love the cover. The cover is gorgeous. I haven't seen the cover, so I can't judge. Well, I will show you the cover so you can see how pretty it is. Because that's definitely something I look for when I buy a book, is how pretty a cover is. Clearly, you're not a book reader, or it would be. There you go. But you know that's false. You know, a lot of the books that, the special editions and things like that, I'm always pretty fond of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely would seem kind of like a cover that would at least catch my eye. It's interesting. So it's supposed to be slightly magical and fun and whimsy. I would say it checks off those boxes. But this week, instead of talking about you reading a book, we're going to talk about the Prisoner of Azkaban book-to-movie adaptation. Did you like it? How much we hated the adaptation to the movie. The movie itself was good if it was by itself and I hadn't read the book. But God almighty, just so much core stuff that needed to happen not in the movie at all. It's like they took the book and stuck it in a blender and whatever came came out out was was the movie. movie. Like, there were so many things that were misplaced. Like, it doesn't happen here, but for some reason you stuck it there anyway and it didn't make any sense. But then you had to change things later on in the movie for what you changed to make sense. It it almost hurt my brain how much was mixed up. Like, it's just like, whoa, that wasn't supposed to happen for like another few months. Wait, that that was supposed to happen months ago. You know, like, it was just all over the place timeline-wise. Oh, yeah. And it just... I just want to know how it can be such a long movie and still get so much wrong. <laughs> right. It's because they wanted to take a lot of pretty outdoor shots. I didn't notice how much stuff happens outside that should have happened inside until I watched it this time. Yeah. And, like, yeah, it's really pretty. Like, no one's ever said Hogwarts and the Hogwarts grounds aren't pretty. But, oh, my God, the director was in love with it. I would say the people that they casted for Professor Trelawney and Lupin, spot on what my brain would have pictured. Obviously, Lupin is supposed to be younger. You pointed that out to me, and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Duh. Well, he's supposed um, to be in his early 30s at this point. What yeah. the heck is this? But, like, when it came to the personalities, I feel like they pretty much nailed him right on the head. And I was like, perfect. You did something right in this movie. It wasn't much, but it was something. Yeah. Harry receiving the firebolt at the end of the year versus in the middle of the year. And that cut out a lot of the fighting between the core trio. And it's just like, I don't know what is happening anymore. Yeah, it almost seemed like Hermione's fight with Ron was nonsensical and not necessary because they took out the things that were, like, kind of building the the wood pile for the fire that was going to burn. Yeah. Like, it was just like, wow, they're really angry at each other for one thing that probably didn't actually happen and we don't know because there's no information. And, like, it doesn't even show in the movie when Ron finds the scabbers is missing. He just comes down and goes, 
we're scabbers. Yeah. And it's just like, what is he even yelling about? I don't even know what he's mad about. Like, they, they there's didn't nothing even to set, set up the scene. Mm-hmm. Like, so, I don't know. It seemed, it seemed really poorly derived at a director's opinion on something to turn into a movie. I don't know. It just seemed well, lackluster. I mean, if you really want to get into it, if you open on Harry doing magic underneath his sheets as part of his summer homework or whatever, and then five minutes later, he's yelling at Uncle Vernon saying he doesn't care that he can't do magic outside of school because he's leaving. And it's like, you just did magic outside of school. How have you not already been kicked out? What is happening? It just pays to be Harry Potter, clearly, because like it makes you invincible to punishment to an extent. There wasn't even a threat of punishment for that. And so that's one of the first things that bothers me is the logic of this world is just thrown off kilter for like a petty opening scene. Like you could have started that scene anywhere. You could have done him actually writing his paper and trying to avoid getting caught. You could have done it with just him opening his presents from his friends for the first time, having his first real birthday. Right. But instead, you choose something that goes against everything we know about how the magic is supposed to work. Yeah. It's just frustrating. I can understand it wholeheartedly. It's just, as I read through the book, I fell in love with the third book. And I currently still stand where I believe I did last week, which was my favorite book. And it just hurts so much in my soul that they destroyed it so much. Well, and you completely miss Harry negotiating about his form and then him having to deal with a week of Aunt Marge. This just looked like one evening he just blew his lid for no reason. Yeah, and then as well, too, you know, obviously not having that backstory, the hatred between the two of those two characters was, in the book, very well represented, and in the movie it was just like, well, Aunt Marge is rude to Harry, therefore Harry attacks her. Like, it just, it's no no real reason to, like, lose it, Uh, flip of a switch. Yeah. But in fairness, if they had done all those things, the movie would have been eight hours long. Well, if you take out some of the five-minute shots of the outside of Hogwarts, maybe you could have fit it in. (laughs) Or the Buckbeak scene that never actually happened where he flew around the entire right. surrounding area of the castle, around the castle, and so on and so forth. It just seemed like it was never ending. It was just like, well, yeah, he rides Buckbeak around the stall, but like I would have imagined it maybe a hundred yards at the most away from where he was and then yeah. came back down. And that's like including the altitude as well, so like not that far away. I don't know. It just seems weird. Yeah. And there's no mention of black on the television, so that has to get explained differently throughout the whole... Yeah, and honestly, the scene where Harry kind of finds out how bad black is and why he, you know, Harry's being treated like this, hey, we can't let him get hurt type of a thing, or like an item, such a protected item, that, you know, you miss that scene with the Weasleys where he ends up finding out in the book, and I think, honestly, that's a much better laying of the groundwork than Mr. Weasley coming up and going... So you know why it's important that you're being so protected right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and Harry's like, no, I don't. Because at that point, like, all he's seen is posters of Sirius Black being escaped. He knows nothing else about it. Yeah. Like, literally nothing. He doesn't even know who he is. Even how Harry finds out the actual story of his father being a friend with Black and everything with their backstory and him being Harry's godfather, you just completely jacked up that whole scene for 
no reason I can think of except for tight shooting quarters. Like, to shoot it, it would be difficult because Harry's supposed to be hiding underneath the table when he overhears the teachers talking about it. Right. So, that's all I can think of. I think it would have been a more crucial scene because there's a lot more detail and actual information that's given during that scene in the book. Whereas in the movie, it's like a 30 second to 45 second clip and it's just like, well, did you hear this? And then it's done. Yeah. And... What? I think it's done a little more realistically in the book, which is funny because it's one of the things that people point out as being one of the things that J.K. Rowling just kind of had to lay in Harry's lap for the story to work. (laughs) So the fact that it makes more sense in the book says a lot about how the movie is so messed up. Yeah. And again, if, if I had gone and seen the movie separate from having read the book, I probably wouldn't be as frustrated and not quite enraged but like close <laughs> there's a level definitely of just, angry about it yeah where it just i don't know it just seemed like it really dropped the ball in comparison to what the book was whereas in the previous movies they weren't that far off you yeah. know like they were still missing things but it wasn't such important stuff well and then they add weird things to it to try to add to the world of harry potter and all these things do is absolutely enrage me and one of them is the weird shrunken heads both in the night bus and the three broomsticks on the door. Yeah. But then you've got the weird guy doing wandless magic in the middle of the leaky cauldron while he's reading a book. And that pissed me off. It really should be called Prisoner of Azkaban and the wandless magic because this movie had so much wandless magic. And just doing wordless magic is supposed to be hard enough that a lot of people can't do it. How in the hell are they supposed to be able to do wandless magic? Right. And then for me, a lot of the stuff that Dumbledore says isn't actually in the books. He's just suddenly very philosophical in this movie for some reason. And like Dumbledore was already going to be a hard enough transition in this one because the actor who played him in the first two movies had died before the third one got filmed. So you were already going to have someone else trying to take his place and that being a weird transition. But then you add all these weird philosophical lines that he's just dropping all over the place in the middle of speeches or in the middle of watching a bunch of kids sleeping in the middle of the dining room, whatever. So for me, that all feels like a mistake. And dare we even go into the fact that the Gryffindor house is in a stairwell now instead of a hallway like it was in the first movies. All the common rooms are supposed to be hidden for a reason. Like, it's not just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's just weird that the director, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it was the same director for all the films, right? No. No? This was a different director than the first two. That's probably why. It sounds like this guy was a lazy SOB because there is, like, just, they're hidden rooms for the common rooms. How hidden is it if literally everybody's walking back from from their dinner and everybody's in the stairwell and all the Gryffindors are just standing on one stairwell that's moving. Like, yeah. come on now. It's not that complicated to figure out that that's wrong. All I can think is they were trying to make it more accessible for A, shooting or B, storytelling for the whole series Black trying to enter the common room and slashing up the portrait or whatever. But it just, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it for two seconds. Right. And that's a lot of my problems with this movie is if you think about it for two seconds, it doesn't work in the magical world that was supposed to already have been set up. Right. It's not like the castle changed shapes 
in between years. You I know. mean, maybe it could, but moving a whole common room, like they're supposed to be in a tower for F's sake. Yeah. And you have them in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the floor. Yeah, yeah. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Nope. None whatsoever. And then you also miss that like awkward scene between Harry and Cho Chang on the pitch for oh, their yeah, game. Yeah. You actually miss the entire Ravenclaw match. You miss a lot of Quidditch in this one, and I didn't see Oliver Wood once, which was a disappointment because he's one of my favorites. He didn't have full scenes, but he did make a presence in the first Quidditch match with Hufflepuff. He was there and then gone. He crashed. You actually saw him crash at the very beginning and then in the movie, but that it was an instant. Like, here he was, and now he's gone. I think that might have actually been just a stunt guy, okay. not actual Oliver Wood, but I get what you're trying to say. Yeah, it was supposed to be his character, yeah. to say the least. One of the things I think that gets under my skin, too, is the whole, for some reason, they had a toad band choir thing at the opening feast and it's just like what is going on right now that was one of the weirder things in the movie i didn't know that harvard's had a choir they don't nor did i know that you could play a toad as an instrument um maybe there's a spell for that you know how there's an app for that maybe there's a spell for that (laughs) it just there's no reason for that i think they wanted to make it sort of a creepy opening because they showed it raining and the carts going up to the castle and it's supposed to be very creepy feeling especially after what just happened with the dementors but i feel like you could have played that like if you wanted that sound clip to be in there you could have played that without having to pretend there's a band in hogwarts right for some reason again another creative judgment call that didn't really make pan out very well they also completely skip the part where Harry and Hermione have to go to McGonagall's office when they first get there. Yeah. So, not a big thing in reality. It's just a little annoyance. But when there's so many, it just adds up. Definitely. The scenes, too, related to a lot of the Buckbeak-related stuff were all over the place in the movie. It seemed like you were missing a couple scenes where Hermione was reading up on all these court cases and things like that for dangerous animals or dangerous creatures previously. Yeah. And so, like, it's like no wonder Buckbeak failed because nobody was trying to help him. It just seemed kind of dumb. Like, if you're going to include it, include it. Don't just give us, like, a tidbit of the story and just be like, it's important. It just, it seemed like in the movie, Buckbeak was only a device to get serious to safety. Whereas in the book, that might have been the whole point of having Buckbeak, but you had everything else layered into it that made it seem more than a plot device. Right. Also, I looked it up, and Sean Biggerstaff is not in the third. So they had a stunt double they had a stunt doing double his death. Well, not death. But death? Like, Jeez. Yeah. No, his crash scene where yeah. he's falling out of the sky. No one's died in a game of Quidditch for at least a century. Yeah, no big deal. They've disappeared a couple times and they've not come back right away. Mm-hmm. They usually turn up in a month or two. Yeah. It's um, bad that I'm helping you quote those things. I now. appreciate you going with it. It's very nice. Slowly being turned. And uh, another thing that sort of bothered me that, again, it's not a big deal. It would make sense in, like, a muggle school situation is that for some reason all of the houses are in the classes together so everyone's doing transfiguration at the same time everyone's doing divination at the same time whereas in the books it's like two classes at a time yeah like two you only have so many classes with the slytherins but every time you turn around in this movie there's draco trying to get 
Harry's attention. And being undermine a him. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't like that. I also didn't like that during the first Care of Magical Creatures scene, you could see Hermione's time turner. Like, this is supposed to be a secret. They're only ever supposed to see you tucking something into your robes. They're never supposed to actually see it. Right. So that was a little annoying. It's not a big deal because it doesn't actually get pointed out or anything, but just seeing it was a little annoying. Yeah, you made it a point to point it out to me, and I still barely caught it. So, like, I guess that shows you how much more you were paying attention to that exact scene. Well, I've also seen the movie quite a few times, read the book even more, so... So, no home, home court advantage, then, is what I'm hearing. That's not a real thing. Moving on. I also don't like... This is, like, a structural issue, speaking of how Hogwarts apparently has changed in a year. That weird clock that was in so many shots... Like, that wasn't there before. Yeah, you had the big old metal piece going back and forth, swinging back and forth. And I'm like... A kid's going to get hurt. Oh, absolutely. Like, running along and all of a sudden, like, just absolutely just cold-shouldered out. Or someone purposefully doing something to someone else or daring someone to stand there. I could see teenage boys doing that for sure. But for some reason, it was very important. It was also very important for Harry to be staring out of the face of the front of that clock tower at one point being all sad and depressed about not going to Hogsmeade. I think that was again more of an artistic take on just trying to build the character a little bit but yeah I kind of see your point. No it was important. I also don't like where Snape is doing the defense against Stark art class because Lupin is sick and Snape calls Hermione an insufferable know-it-all which Harry and Ron have done a thousand times but in the book Ron stands up for Hermione against Snape right. and in the movie he just basically goes well he's right. Yeah, it it definitely takes away from the building relationship that they're supposed to have slowly across the series. So it's kind of frustrating that they they took that out and then just again it wraps up to just bad decisions by the director for things. Well, it's it's frustrating because like I'm a big fan of Ron and you're just changing his character. Yeah. That, that's not okay, you know. That, that's why book run is so much better than movie run. Like, there's just <laughs> one example. Yeah, I do remember that lovely panel that we sat on for WikiCon, and it, it was interesting. And now I kind of, I'm slowly growing to understand why you guys like book run so much more. I really wanted to off-the-cuff talk about how great movie run was, but having only seen four of the movies, I feel like I probably would have been just obliterated out of the water. <laughs> yeah, well... It gets worse as the series goes on, I think. And speaking of that budding romance, I really didn't like the things that they added to this movie to lay the foundation for Ron and Hermione. They were small, but it was enough to get on my nerves because... Holding hands and stuff like that? Well, and him comforting her and stuff. Mm. And it's just like, that's not how that's supposed to happen. Because I specifically remember reading books one through four and seeing this like trajectory of Harry and Hermione getting together. And then that changed in the back half of the series, which is fine. You get a crush on someone and you move on or whatever. But I just don't like how the movies are trying to pretend like the whole time Hermione's been interested in Ron. Because even if you're not going to say Harry and Hermione should have ended up together, I could still see examples in the first four books of where she might have had feelings for Harry. Whether they were serious about the feelings or not, whatever. But I seriously thought when I was reading that that was where it was going to go. Right. So I don't like them adding that. (laughs) 
I don't blame you for that one. It seems like it would kind of steer you away from one of the possible options for Hermione. Well, it's specifically a tentacle plot point in the fourth book. Like, not a very obvious one, because she's got a different romantic interest in the fourth one. I was going to say no spoilers, please. I'm just about to start that book. I know. I'm just saying. It can be inferred from things in the fourth book that maybe there might have been something there previously. Gotcha. All right. I also really didn't like how they completely took out the Christmas scene. Yeah, well, you're a Christmas lover of every opportunity for Christmas you could get, so I kind of understand that. They just had Hedwig transition from flying over fall colors to flying in snow, and then all of a sudden Christmas was over. There were some things that were wrong specifically related to the Marauders map that were frustrating. And I don't want to say just negative things about the book to movie adaptations because there are some things that the books didn't do as well as the movies. But this one is such a mess that I can't think of anything great to say about it. Well, like, even the scene when he gets it from the twins... That was wrong. That was horribly wrong. Though, I will say, I still love the twins. Even though that scene was wrong, I still came out of that scene going, you know, those boys are great. I really like them. Yeah. But then you've also got the fact that Harry's up one night looking through the Marauder's map for some unknown reason while everyone else is asleep. Right. And he finds Pettigrew. And he's never supposed to see Pettigrew on the map. Like, he never does in the books. That's supposed to be a complete and total shock to him. That's why he doesn't believe him originally when Lupin says something in the Shrieking Shack. So, that whole thing was a mess. I know it's supposed to be him seeing that so he can go get caught by Snape so that Lupin can take the map from him. But if you didn't condense all the Hogsmeade visits into one scene... You would have already seen all that. Then... That could have happened without a problem. Don't get me started about the Hogsmeade thing. I know we're still on the other subject, but geez. Yeah, that was a whole mess. And so if you had left the Hogsmeade scenes the way they were supposed to be, you wouldn't have had to add these like four or five things that are also wrong right. to try to fix that. Right. Like the writing for this was just so wrong. And it was supposed to be just wrong, by the way, at the Hogsmeade scene, right? Where yeah. Just... Hermione wasn't supposed to be at the Shrieking Shack when right. Harry goes bananas on uh, Malfoy. Yeah. As well, too, Malfoy doesn't even know it's him. Yeah, he's supposed to technically catch him and try to tell on him. Again, but... all the storylines that could have gone the right direction could have still been good. They could have accurately kept that portion of those scenes and everything would have played out according to the way it should have. Yeah. Probably about the same amount of time, too, no less. Another thing that also got under my skin is they mess up Trelawney's prediction for what's going to happen that night. They, I think, technically got the last line correct, but everything else was wrong. Everything in the middle was gobbledygook. Yeah. Yeah, and as well, it was done at the wrong time, too, which is even the more annoying part. It's it, supposed to be basically during finals. It's literally the scene while Hermione rage quits the class, basically, and in the movie. And that makes no sense because those are supposed to be, again, months apart. It's yeah. not supposed to be right on top of each other, so. And then, of course, the Whomping Willow was all wrong and how they're supposed to get into the Whomping Willow. And then it leads to us seeing Sirius for the first time. And surprise, surprise, he looks way too freaking old for how old he's supposed to be. Yeah. 
In fairness, though, being an Azkaban probably takes a few years off your face a little bit, I would imagine. So he probably wouldn't have looked as young as he was supposed to, but he definitely still looked older than he should have at the same time. He's supposed to be in his 30s, like early to mid-30s, and he looks like he's in his mid-40s. So, like, I know Azkaban was rough, and he is supposed to look gaunt and very pallid and very thin and sort of worn out. But he is not supposed to look 10 years older, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Again, I think they hired a good actor to play him. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Nailed it on the head. But the dilemma was, again, weird casting in the sense of like age groups that they were supposed to hire. But again, I think I stated in the previous book-related adaptation podcast episodes where I think it was aimed to kind of make it more like grown-up style adults instead of like young parents. Like, you know. Well, I think you're... When you're doing that, then you're missing the whole point because it's supposed to be absolutely horrifying that people, these people, this young, are dealing with so much trauma and so much fallout from a war. Like, it's supposed to be really scary that Harry's parents were so young when they died. They were, what, 21 when they were supposed to have died? So, yeah, it's not supposed to be all sunshine and rainbows and, like, real grown-ups like Molly and Mr. Weasley. Yeah, it's true. And then the whole Shrieking Shack thing was... A disaster? Yeah, just completely messed up, and I don't even know how to start with that. Firstly, how did Harry's expelliarmus be strong enough to knock back Snape by himself? Maybe it was just fueled by his rage. Instead of just the three of them all doing it at the same time, which would have made plenty of sense. Or his absolute hatred of Snape. And then when they come back from the shrieking shack too, Snape's nowhere to be found. He's not like being dragged out or anything and then all of a sudden... No, they just left him on the floor. And then Snape magically appears, you know, to like protect him at the last second out of God knows where. Right. So it was just... It was overall just kind of a weird scene and just strange. And it was basically at this point that I stopped taking notes out of just absolute (laughs) anger and rage and desire for this to be over because it was just so messed up. And and remind me if I'm correct, when they get back out, Lupin does change into the werewolf, which is accurate. Mm -hmm. And then Sirius Black ends up changing into his dog self. But he does it to run away from to run away from Lupin in order to get them to let the kids be safe, right? Yeah, he's basically supposed to be a distraction to save everyone else. Instead of like the weird fight scene that goes down and Well, I mean, it's been said in the books that basically when Lupin had his transformation, all the other animals would keep him in line. So my assumption is that that's usually what happens when Lupin transforms is that they sort of wrangle him away from places or behaviors he's not supposed to be or do. Right. So I could see how that would make some sort of sense. But then the whole responding to Hermione's wolf call was weird. And then he's down by the lake with Harry, but Hermione's also supposed to be there, but she's not. And then like the throwing of the pebbles, that doesn't actually happen in the book. Yeah, when they're in Hagrid's head. They just notice that they're coming. Yeah. (laughs) How hard would it be for one of them to look out a freaking window, like, seriously? Which, in a turn, does make it seem like it was a little more complicated in the movie to do the time-turner thing, because 
you know, they weren't involved with like the, oh God, we got to get their attention and do this and do mm-hmm. that. You know, it was more like, okay, well, let's and wait and then free fuck They They already were impacting time, A, just by going back, but B, by saving Buckbeak and then Harry having to save himself and everyone else. So that feels completely unnecessary. Right. Especially when the whole time Hermione's like, Harry, you can't mess with time. Bad things happen to people who mess with time and all of that. So it just seems very contradictory to Hermione's character to do that. They already had enough to be getting on with. I don't think that was necessary. I agree. And if you want to talk about Lupin during this last part and his transformation, that wolf looks so freaking stupid. Yeah. Like, I've seen movies in the 90s that did better wolf CGI. Like, that was so ugly and stupid. It makes me really feel like they either A, undercut the budget, and they rushed a lot of scenes, and that's why it's the way it is. They had to buy a lot of camera equipment to film outside of Hogwarts. Yeah. Again, I think most of that was CGI, but when it comes to the CGI money, maybe it was all spent on the outside scenes and not on Lupin. It just, it feels like this movie is trying to be more action-y. Than it needs to be. Than it's supposed to be. And I think it focuses more on, I think, plot, even though it got it wrong, than the books did. I think the books were more focused on storytelling and sort of the, the background, sort of setting everything up, and character development. I can agree with that as well. It, it definitely seemed like a little bit different take on the movie styles that we saw previously, obviously. But I think, you know, in the sixth book or sixth movie, they also change a lot of stuff, but I think it actually adds a lot to the movie. So I don't mind it so much. Right. But this one just seems to be about stripping away parts of the book that I love. And like the sixth book is not my favorite. So maybe that might be part of the reason I don't mind it. But the third book has been, it might still be my favorite. So that might be part of the reason that I get so offended watching this movie and just absolutely hating on it. Yeah, I think I'm also kind of in the same boat. I'm a little defensive over what they did to the the movie adaptation of the book because the book was so much better than the first two books. And it's just like the book set the bar so high and the movie was like, well, we're here. We did a thing. And it really reminds me kind of like a lot of the video game turned into movie things that have existed that were just awful adaptations. And it's almost on the same plane as that for me. But for you, up next, you're going to be reading Goblet of Fire. You've technically already started it because this book's chunky. Yeah, it's definitely a bigger book. I think it's going to be spread out probably across like three or four weeks worth of podcasts just because it is nearly double the size of the previous book. So yeah, I'm excited to read it. Obviously, coming off of the high of having one of my favorites so far by far it's just obliterated everything i'm really concerned that it's going to let me down a little bit but i you've told me that there's exciting things going on and the things i've read already are beyond exciting so and we'll save that obviously for next week but i'm ready to read a new book yeah for me this past week i read prisoner of azkaban in the lead up to us talking about the movie and then I also got to read the newest Murderbot Diaries book called Network Effect by Martha Wells. I ended up giving it four stars, so I really enjoyed it. It's not my 
favorite, despite the fact that it's longer. Like, that's been my complaint with all the novellas is I want more, I want more, I want more. And then I got more and it's a four star instead of the highest rating that I've given the books, which is 4.25. And this one is its sort of own thing versus the other novellas, which sort of have like this overarching plot. So it's good to see where that's going. But I think I've discovered one of my main problems with Murderbot as a character. And I think it's just because he's an AI. He doesn't really seem to feel that connection with his humans or their humans the way that I feel like they should. So instead of this being a whole found family trope, it's more like found extended family. Like they found their cousins and not like their actual families. They didn't actually find their cousins. It's just, it's not as close knit as I would want in a found family trope. But they kind of are a found family. Interesting. So it's just, I don't know, for me, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy where the rest of these go because the way this one ended, it seemed like Murderbot is going to leave their found family and go on a new thing. And I don't know if I'm going to like that because I've liked these humans that Murderbot has been around on and off since the beginning. So I don't know if I'm going to like where the next story goes, but it comes out in 2021. So maybe if I reread all of these before then, I might have a different feel for them or a different opinion. Yeah, rereading things sometimes can obviously change that perspective on, you know, what you took in the first time. So that, you know, might be helpful. Yeah. That's all I got to this past week. It's been kind of a hectic week. So I've only got two books up next for what I'm going to be reading in the next week, which are an arc from NetGalley. I was actually sent it directly to my email from the publisher. It's You Have a Match by Emma Lord. I read Tweet Cute at the end of last year, which was her first novel. It's a contemporary romance and it was really cute. So the publisher sent me this one to review through NetGalley. And so far, I'm about a third of the way through. It's about this girl whose friend wants to do this DNA test in order to find possibly their family since they're adopted. So in solidarity, she does it too. Mm -hmm. And then she actually finds somebody hidden in her family that she didn't know about. That's interesting. And so she's got to figure out how to get to know this person without creating conflict in her family because she has this big fear of fights and conflict. So that's so far pretty interesting. She's technically met this person and they're trying to go to the same camp together so that they can have a few weeks without the family around to try to get to know each other. It's interesting sounding at least like I I always kind of wondered the DNA thing if I have like any weird extended family floating about in the universe but well having done it all I found is like third through fifth cousins so this is probably not a normal thing yeah people that you should probably never really know as family realistically it's so extended yeah but it's also supposed to be a romance and I'm not sure how I'm gonna feel about that aspect obviously not with the family member with a friend or someone she meets at camp but it's a contemporary so it's pretty easy to read so far I think it's hopefully gonna go where I want it to go and and then it'll be a really high rating but we'll see And then the next book that I'm going to end up reading after I finish You Have a Match is The Candle and the Flame by Nafisa Azad. 
So this book is about Fatima, and she lives in the city of Noor, which is a stop along the Silk Road. Apparently, it still has all these issues related to wars and things from its past. And so when a tribe of jinn had slaughtered the entire population except for her and two other humans. Some really messed up genies. Well, they are. She's got to discover how she's going to fit in with this new ruler, and she's protected by some ifrit, which is a jinn order, and then one of the most powerful ones die. And when the most powerful Ifrit dies, she supposedly is changed in a lot of ways. And so it scares the people who love her. And she has to sort of go from there and deal with a magic battle. So she's like Jin on Jin fighting and she's there to aid the battle or like... I'm not sure. That's just sort of what it says in the Goodreads synopsis. And Mm -hmm. so she is gonna have to figure out how to fit in with all these changes to not just herself but her world. It sounds really good. It's a standalone. I'm not sure how I feel about a standalone because I don't know how much world building is going to be able to happen. Right. But I am enjoying reading desert fantasies, especially ones with magic and gin and that sort of thing. So I was going to say gins are be kind of become a common subject here on the podcast. Yeah, well, I did just read City of Brass and that whole series, so. It seems like it could be a much shorter kind of YA version of that, hopefully without the romance side, since it is such a short book. So you want the violence and the war. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. And if I can, I'll try to get started on other books for the magical readathon that's happening this month. It's the last... Harry Potter themed one happening because of everything going on with JK Rowling. And so I've got a TBR for that on my blog and on my original Instagram. So not our Instagram, but just my personal one. And I think that's it as far as the books go. It's been kind of a shorter week in the news, but that happens sometimes. It does. Also in the sports side of things, it happens sometimes. So, you know, as we seemed to be this week, it was kind of short on both ends. Yeah. Of the news world. Which means it will probably be extra long next week. That seems to be the way it goes. But uh, be prepared for that. Honestly, guys, check us out on Instagram for that giveaway. We would love to gift you one of these amazing Fly Paper Products items. All the links should be in the show notes, so make sure you check that out. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.